there are more and more pastors, preachers that are surrendering um, to what people want to hear. Just like Peter and Paul predicted it would happen. Eventually there will be a group of people that want, they want to be told what they want to hear. And it's happening, it's happening in our pulpits. It's happening in our pulpits all around the country. It's happening in our pulpits with pastors that we never thought would be that way. And uh, we're very fortunate here at Tomoka that that's not the case, that we've got pastors that will stand true to the word of God. And so I'm very grateful for that today. After, yes, amen, amen, absolutely. And what I like most is when, when one of us says something that that our leadership doesn't always agree with. They call us on it and they, mention, they eventually, we sit down with scripture and we go through it just like what happened a few weeks ago uh, with Joe and the weekend and our elders were right there to say, are you sure about that? And so not only do we have uh, pastors that are willing to stay true to the word, we've got elders that want to hold them accountable to that as well. And so I'm very grateful for that as well. So we're wrapping up, John. Uh, we've been in the series called Signs. Uh, we've been using this verse in, in John chapter 20 at the end of the actual book. At the end of John, John says, you know, the, all these things Jesus did, right? And they, and he did them, right? He did them as signs so that people would believe in him and in believing in him, they would have life everlasting, right? The whole purpose of these miracles in the gospel of John is so that the belief in Jesus would take place. Now we've simply changed the culture of what a miracle is supposed to be about, but even the miracle worker himself had only one goal in mind, and that was that the miracles would point people to believing in Jesus, not to seek the miracle. And we've watched that happen over and over again in these, in these signs. And so we get to the end of chapter 20, and when you read the, the, the gospel account, that seems like that should be the end of it, right? That's the end of the story. You know, I don't know how many of you have ever watched the Marvel movies. Anybody here watch Marvel movies, right? I don't, and I don't remember when this happened, but I remember going to the theater with my kids once, and I remember the credits rolled, and when the credits roll, I roll, right? Like when the credits are there, it's, it's time to go. And, and I just remember being in the theater and they were like, whoa, 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 whoa. I'm like, what do you mean? Whoa, whoa, whoa. It's, it's one o'clock in the morning. We got to go, right? And they're like, no, 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 no. You don't, you don't understand, right? There's an, there's an Easter egg coming. Like, what is an Easter egg got to do with me going home, right? So apparently at some point in time, they developed this Easter egg thought process where halfway through the credits, they do a preview, right? Sort of an epilogue to the movie and sort of a preview to the next movie. And that's become sort of the thing. And I was told that's called an Easter egg. Who knew, right? John 21 is that, right? The gospel account ends strongly there in John chapter 20. And then all of a sudden, John 21 becomes this Easter egg moment where there's this epilogue and the continuance of the story that leads into the next season for Jesus and the church and the disciples. 
And that's what we find ourselves in, in John chapter 21. And, and here's the thing. We're in Galilee. Jesus was crucified, was buried, and rose again nine days earlier in Jerusalem. We're now nine days post-resurrection, two appearances by Jesus, and we are now moved 70 miles north to Galilee, where we find the disciples. The question is, why are we here? Well, Jesus, Matthew writes this in Matthew 28, verse 5, and says this, The angel said to the women, this was at the tomb, don't be afraid, for I know that you're looking for Jesus who was crucified. He's not here. He has risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, he's risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. And then in verse 16, I think it's in verse 16, says this, then the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. You know, there's a lot of people who, who have who've misstated why the disciples are in Galilee. Right? They've quit. They've given up. Listen, the Bible text is clear. The disciples went to Galilee because Jesus told them to go there. They're not where they're not supposed to be. They're simply where Jesus said, I'm going to go ahead of you and there I will see you. Now, if Jesus says, I'm going to Galilee and I'm going to see you there, what do you think you should do? Tarry in Jerusalem or go to Galilee? It just makes sense that the disciples are right where they're supposed to be. And so if you've done any research on this and you've seen or listened to preachers who have condemned the act of the disciples of being in Galilee, you can just know that's not the biblical narrative. They were told to go there. They were told Jesus was coming. And so he, they did exactly what they were told to. And so we find Jesus in this place. And then John 21 verse 1 sets the context for why we're even talking about this. John 21 and verse 1 says this. After this, right? After what? After the, the death and the burial and the resurrection, after the two sightings, after all of those things, listen to this, Jesus revealed, everybody say revealed. He revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias or the Sea of Galilee. And he revealed himself in this way. So Jesus revealed himself in a particular way. And so what I want us to do in this last sign in the gospel is find out where Jesus is actually revealing himself in this miracle. There are three places that we're going to look at that Jesus reveals himself in this miracle and what that means for us. The fish, the fire, and the face-to-face. The fish, the fire, and the face-to-face. We're not going to read the narrative in, in, in in its entire form, but we're going to read it as we break it up. All right? So here's what it says in John chapter 21 about the fish. John 21, 3 through 6. Peter says, I'm going out to fish. Now listen. So many preachers just make such a big deal about this. I don't know if you know this or not, but Peter was a fisherman. Right? John was a fisherman. Andrew was a fisherman. Right? Philip was a fisherman. These guys were fishermen. Right? They were back home. In Galilee, where they were from. And they were told to go there by Jesus. Hey, go back and quickly tell them, I'm going to Galilee and that's where I will see you. Right? 
And guess what Peter did when he was there waiting on Jesus? He what? He went fishing. Anybody that's making a huge deal about this, I think is so far off base. What else was he going to do? He wasn't a carpenter. These people clearly weren't wealthy. Unlike Judas, they hadn't been pilfering from the bag of money that they carried with them. He was simply fishing as a fisherman because fishermen who needed to eat simply fished. Can I get an amen? It wasn't this huge thing that we conjecture. Oh, he was, he was forsaking Jesus. He was in Galilee where he grew up doing the thing that he had been taught to do because the man was probably hungry, right? So he was fishing. So it says he went fishing. Simon Peter told them, and they said, we're going to go with you. Surprise, other fishermen went fishing. Have you met fishermen? They're weird, okay? They get up at the crack of dawn to basically go stand or sit in a body of water to wait, right? But they go together, right? So they went out and they got in the boat. Now, of course, Thomas goes with them. We find that out in verse 2. And Thomas was not a fisherman, right? So they went out and they got into the boat. Listen to this. But that night they caught what? They didn't catch anything, right? Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore. So they fished all night. Now, listen, I don't know about you, but when you do something and you spend all those hours doing something and it basically provides you nothing in return, what's your general overall mood? Good or bad? Right? It's terrible. Right? These guys have fished all night, caught zero. Jesus is standing on the shore, but the disciples didn't realize it was Jesus. We're not told why, right? Anybody that wants to say why is just conjecturing. We don't know why. It doesn't matter to the context of the story. He called out to them. So they've been out all night, and here's this guy on the shore who they don't know who it is, and here's what he says to them. Friends, haven't you any fish? Now, in the Greek... That is a rhetorical question. And basically what it says is this. Hey, fellas, how's it going? Right? Rhetorically meaning, I know it went terribly and I'm being a little bit sarcastic. Right? Listen, if you don't recognize Jesus as a human, you don't recognize these kind of things. But in the Greek, it isn't this way. In the Greek, order of the language means everything. This is a... This is a rhetorical question. And anytime you give a rhetorical question, you're being a tad bit sarcastic, aren't you not? Right? Think of the last time you asked your children, your spouse, your boyfriend or girlfriend, your boss, a rhetorical question. There's a little bit of snottiness behind it, right? A little bit of sarcasm. So here these guys are. They fished all night. They got nothing. This complete stranger on the shore is going, hey, how's it going? Right? Here's what it says. Did you catch any fish? No, they answered. Right? He said to them, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. Really? The right side? We didn't think about that, Jesus. We've been fishing off of the left side all night long. Right? Right? It wasn't like it was a revelation over something you know fishermen had thought to do. Right? So he says... They did it. When they did it, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish, right? Verse 7 and 8 says this. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved. If you're writing a story and you're John, you call yourself the disciple whom Jesus loved, right? Don't you love? Anybody that says the Bible isn't real hasn't read it. 
Right? If this is, if this is, why are you doing that? I love John. He's so arrogant. I'm the disciple whom Jesus loved, right? Says it about himself, right? I'm the disciple who Jesus loved, said to Peter, it is the Lord, right? Of course, John's the guy that recognizes it. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it's the Lord, he wraps himself in his garment around him, for he'd taken it off and he jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from the shore, about 100 yards, 300 feet. So, so here's the picture. These guys out all night, out all night, right? They haven't, haven't been around, been out all night, right? Nothing caught. Stranger on the shore says, hey, mockingly, how'd it go, right? Not good, not good. The guy on the shore, who they don't know who it is, says to them, hey, if you'll just take your net, if you'll just cast it on the right side, it'll be fine. They do it. The Bible says... Eventually, it tells us there's 153 fish in the net. Weird detail, right? Just a, just a reminder, this is an eyewitness account, right? John's not writing this from hearsay. John was in the boat, right? He knew. They counted. 153. Then John says to Peter, that's Jesus. That's Jesus. And Peter jumps. They're only a, they're 100 yards from the shore in a boat. They all know how to row. And he jumps in the water. Right? He grabs his garment and he jumps into the water for just a leisurely 100-yard swim. When the boat is going to the exact same place. Right? It says this in John 21, verses 10 and 11. They get to the shore, right? Peter gets there. The boat gets there. Jesus said to them, bring me some of the fish you've just caught. Look what happens. Peter climbs aboard. Now, the fish were drugged by the other guys in the boat. They didn't even haul it into the boat while they were dragging it. They got it into the boat after the fact. Peter runs over, climbs aboard the boat by himself, drags that and net ashore that was full of large fish, 153, but even with so many, the net wasn't torn. Did a little research. The average size of the fish caught in the Sea of Galilee is 1.5 pounds. A large fish would be at least two. You multiply 153 by two, you get two, 306 This man jumped into the boat after swimming a hundred yards, after fishing all night with no catch, and he drug a 300-pound net of fish to Jesus by himself. Why? There were six other people there. The narrative tells us there was already fish on the fire. Why did Peter go to such great lengths? I think every one of these places, the fish, the fire, and the face-to-face have one principle that we can learn that Jesus reveals to us in it. And here's the principle that I think Jesus reveals to us in the fish. And that is this, right? It's the principle of prove, prove. Everybody say prove versus proof. Proof. Everybody say proof, right? Prove versus proof. Listen, 
you're going to hear this text. But Peter was a, listen, Peter was a boastful guy, right? He was a boastful guy, right? The kind of guy that every time there was a chance to be the guy out front and make the great declaration, that was Peter, right? He was always boasting about his devotion to Jesus, right? But this isn't the first time that Peter's been in a boat where Jesus performed a miracle of fish. But they are two completely different reactions. Look at Luke chapter 5. And I'm going to read these verses of the first time this happened. It says, when he had finished speaking, Jesus, he said to Simon, right? He said to him, put out into the deep water and let down your nets for cash. Now, Jesus had gotten into the boat and he was teaching. And when he finished teaching the people on the shore, he said to Peter, put down your net. Simon answered, Master, same scenario. We've already worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. Sound familiar? We've been here before. But because you say so, I'm going to let down the nets. Because teachers had, a, had utmost respect. And at that point in time, to those men, he was their rabbi. He was their teacher. If he said, let your net down, we'll let our net down. When they had done so... They caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and they filled both boats so full that both boats began to sink. Look at Peter's reaction to this miracle the first time. When Peter saw this, he fell at the feet of Jesus and said, Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Listen, the first time that, the first time that Peter experiences this miracle, his response is to fall and to worship at the feet of a man he knows he's not worthy of. You get that? Right? The second time Jesus performs this miracle in front of Peter, he feels the need to prove himself. He gets out of that boat. He swims a hundred yards. He drags a 300 pound net of fish to Jesus. Why? Because he had spent the last several days aware of the fact that he had denied Jesus three times. I don't, I don't know if this is something that you've ever experienced. But my guess is to everybody online and to everybody here at some point in time, you've disappointed Jesus, have you not? At some point in time, you made a commitment. I don't care what it is. You've made a commitment to something. You made a promise. You made a whatever. And somewhere along the line, you have failed at that commitment. Your words and your promises weren't matched by your performance. Anybody track with that? Anybody in here and online as a Christian ever, ever see their performance fall way short of their promise, anybody, right? And here's what we do, because this is who we are in America. We're going to become self-reliant. We're going to fix it. Yes, Jesus, I need you to save me. I just don't need you to keep me saved. I'll take care of that myself. And when my performance falls flat from my promise, I'll make it up to you. I'll swim a hundred yards of the shore and I'll drag 300 pounds of fish and I'll prove to you that I'm worthy of your affection. Do you know how many people come to church and do that all the time? 
And here's the thing, we're geared to do it because that's what our relationships are built on. Most of us would die to have a relationship where somebody loves us unconditionally. Instead, we get performance evaluations at our relationships all the time. Do we not? We get them at work. I mean, we're geared at work to have performance evaluations, right? If you're in a relationship, married, dating, whatever, do you know what you get all the time? A performance evaluation. Because you're constantly reminded, hey, hey, you made this promise and you didn't live up to it. Right? And now there's consequences to it. Listen, we're geared, we're geared to prove ourselves over and over and over again to people who say they love us. And if you don't believe me, just come and sit in on some marriage counseling we do. It's rampant. Somebody said this and somebody did this and now I'm disappointed and now I can't move on because guess what? They haven't proven. Peter lived in the cycle of believing his job was to prove himself to Jesus for Jesus's affection. You know what the fish tells you? You don't need any of that. If you, listen, if, listen, if you're a believer in Jesus in this room and online, I just need to hear you say amen. You know what you've accepted in believing in Jesus? You've, you've accepted this, a free gift of eternal life. Everybody say free. Free, meaning you can't earn it. And yet how many of you, how many of us, how many of you online spend our days in our faith constantly trying to prove to Jesus, we love you. Please tell me I'm okay. I don't know how many of you ever used to watch and this is going to date me. And if you're younger, please excuse me, right? But Johnny Carson used to be the late night guy. And some of you are like, who's Johnny Carson, right? Listen. Just Google it, right? You won't think he's funny, but the rest of us old people thought he was funny, right? Until David Letterman came along and then he was really funny, right? But Johnny Carson used to have this guy on his late night TV show. I don't know if you ever saw him, but he was a guy that would spin plates on these little sticks, right? And eventually this guy would eventually lay down and he would have a little stick on his, on his left toe, his right toe, his right hand, his right left hand, his right elbow, his left elbow, his, both of his knees on his forehead, his chin. And eventually this guy's spinning like 25 plates, right? It's pretty impressive. And then he would notice one of the plates that were slowing down. And so he would get that spinning again. And he was constantly juggling all of these plates to keep them up that's exactly how so many Christians are. I got to get my Bible reading in. I got to get my Bible reading in. I got to get my Bible reading in. Well, I got to make sure that I'm praying. I got to make sure that I'm praying too. I got to keep that going. Oh, and I got to be serving. I got to keep that going as well. Oh, and I got to give. I got to be generous. I got to keep that plate going. Oh, oh, I didn't read my Bible last week. I got to get that thing spinning. I got to keep this up. And you just keep adding and adding. And here's what you eventually believe. My standing with Jesus is based on my self-reliance and performance. You want to know what the trap of the devil is to defeat the gospel? As opposed to being people who are completely self-reliant on Jesus, we become self-reliant on ourselves. And you know what self-reliant people become in church? They become self-righteous. And self-righteous people have destroyed the intent of the gospel when the gospel's desire was to give you a free gift, a free gift of standing with God that says, you know what? 
I don't need you to spend 25 plates for my approval. I don't need you to swim 100 yards. I don't need you to drag 300 pounds of fish. I don't need you to do that, to prove anything. But if you love me, you will give it as a proof, right? There's a huge difference between proving something and doing it because it's proof of what you've got. Listen, we don't love, we don't perform to get Jesus' love. Now, I don't know where you're at in here or online, but I can tell you this. Your performance today may have stunk. And you might be at home today because you didn't want to come because you had a terrible day. Or maybe some of you are in here and you went, you know, I don't want to be here because I had a terrible day. I did this. I did that. Here's what I know. According to this book that tells us about our Savior, the love of Jesus is not measured based on how well you did today. God's love for you is consistent based on his character and not your performance. Which means we're always loved. And our standing in Jesus is always righteous. And the reason that we read our Bible and we pray and that we serve and that we give isn't to prove to anything to Jesus. It's to give a proof to the world that we believe in the free gift that Jesus gave us. All right? That's the goal. And listen, it is a subtle and slight difference. You can slide, listen, you can slide from appreciation of Luke 5. Oh, Jesus, I'm not worthy. You're so amazing. I can't believe I'm in your presence. And get away from me because I'm a sinner. Into, I've got to drag this net to prove to Jesus I'm making up for my failure. Because eventually it goes from proof into i got to prove something to you. I, I don't... Carmen and I, my wife and I, we have this discussion on a regular basis. We don't always agree about this. I don't believe that we need to prove anything to God. Because if we had, Jesus would have never died for us. Romans says that while you were still sinning, Jesus died for the ungodly. Do you know what God needed from you to die for you? A need. A need. He didn't need you to have a number of things right. He didn't need for you to perform a certain way. He simply needed a need. And because of his love, he surrendered that to you, even when you hadn't proven a thing. And guess what? Do you know how many days we've failed to prove our love to Jesus? Come on. Yeah. Anybody in here failed to prove their love to Jesus any of their days post-Christian? Listen, if you have failed to prove your love to Jesus at least one time since you've become a Christian, raise your hand. I'm not, I'm not moving on till every hand is in the air, right? Listen, every one of you have had days where you have failed to prove your love to Jesus. And do you know what Jesus did with his love for you on those days? He gave it unconditionally. And you never have to drag a 300-pound bag of fish to him to prove you're worthy. You don't have to swim 100 yards to make up for it. Because the love of God doesn't need to be proven. It just needs proof that you've received it. That's what the fish teach me. You ain't proven anything, church. The only thing you're proven is, is that you can become self-reliant and self-righteous and eventually self-righteous people become hypocrites. And hypocrites keep people away from the truth. Just read your gospel account. The only people Jesus despised were the Pharisees. Why? Because they kept good people away from knowing the love of God. Man, let's not become those people. 
Let's make sure that what we do for Jesus, we do as proof, not to prove anything. How about the fire? The fire. Matthew 26 and verse, uh, verse 34. Is that right? Yeah, 34 and 35 say this. This is a conversation, Jesus and the disciples. Here's what Jesus said. I tell you the truth. Jesus answered. He's talking to Peter. This very night before the rooster crows, you're going to disown me or deny me three times. Everybody say three times. Listen to Peter. I mean, listen, Peter's got, that man's got something, right? Jesus is telling him this. And he smarts off to Jesus. He said, even if I have to die for you or die with you, I will, everybody say it. Everybody say online in here. Everybody say never. I will never disown you. And all the other disciples said the same thing. (laughs) And then look at John chapter 18 and verses 15. Simon Peter, this is after Jesus is arrested. They've taken him to the high priest. Right? They've had the arrest in the garden. And now we're going with these phony trials. And it says in Simon Peter and another disciple were following Jesus. Because this disciple was known to the high priest, he went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard. But Peter had to wait outside at the door. The other disciple, who has known to the high priest, came back, spoke to the girl on duty there, and brought Peter in. Listen to this. You're not one of his disciples, are you? She asked. She, the door, the girl's door asked Peter. Peter said what? Read it with me. I, I am not. Even if I have to die with you, Jesus, I will never, ever disown you. Hey, you're one of those guys with him, aren't you? I am not. We move on. It was cold. And the servants, listen to this, and the servants and the officials stood around a what? A fire they had made to keep warm. Peter also was standing with them, warming himself. We fast forward, let's fast forward in that chapter to verse 25. Listen to this. How many times did Jesus say he would deny him? Right? We've got one. As Simon Peter stood there warming himself, what was he warming himself by? The what? The fire. He was asked. You're not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it, saying, read it with me, I am not. Two. One of the high priest servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off in the garden, challenged him. So he heard the question, he heard the answer, and he he goes, Didn't I see you with him in the olive grove? Again, Peter Denied it. And at that moment, we're told in another gospel account, he didn't just deny it, he cursed. And at that moment, a rooster began to crow. Jesus said, before this night's over and the rooster crows, you'll have denied me three times. Peter said, I will die with you. I will never disown you. And just like that, listen to this. Just like that, around a fire, around a fire, Peter denied Jesus three times. You're going, well, I already know that chord. The Greek word for fire there comes from the Greek word anthrax. It's used to describe a charcoal fire. 
So the fire that they stood by that was built the night it was cold was a fire made of charcoal. And it's at that fire three times Peter is asked, are you with this man? And around that fire, that specific charcoal fire, Peter says, I am not. Fast forward. John 21 verse 9 says this. When they landed with their catch of fish, they saw a what? Everybody say fire. Saw a fire of burning coal. Same Greek word. Only used twice. Only used twice. Only used twice. The only two places that this fire is recorded to have burned was in John chapter 18 where Peter denied Jesus three times. He gets out of the boat after running a hundred yards and dragging 300 pounds of fish to prove to Jesus that he loves him. And what's Jesus got built? A fire of remembrance. Why in the world does Jesus feel the need to build the same fire that Peter stood around and denied him? I don't know about you, but man, the power of smell is a powerful sense, is it not? I mean, man, when you smell something, it can trigger memories from 15 years ago, right? I mean, I, it's amazing. Anybody else like that? Right? Smell is a powerful thing, especially to me. I'm not a great person who hears well. I say, huh, a lot, right? But man, I can smell. And man, smells trigger me a ton. Put yourself, listen, put yourself in Peter's position. You've had a rough couple weeks, man. You've said to Jesus, man, I'm, I'm never going to, even if all of these people forsake you, I'll never leave you. Jesus said, before the night's over, you're going to deny me three times. Peter said, no way. No way. Matter of fact, I'll die with you. And I will never, never disown you. Boom, boom, boom. Three times around a charcoal fire. Peter denied him. And nine days after his resurrection, Peter finally gets a chance to come face to face with Jesus to deal with his issues. I don't... Anybody in here ever done something wrong and then you're nervous to see the person that you sort of, you know, done wrong? Anybody relate to that, right? Like, right? Don't want to deal with that. And then when you get there, right, they've got whatever you did wrong laying on the table. Right? And you're like, oh my gosh, this isn't going to go well, right? Peter walks on the shore after all the effort to prove to Jesus that he loves him. And he smells the exact same fire he smelt 12 days before. Why? Because here's what it does to me and you. Listen, I don't, I don't know specifically about all of you or everybody online, but I do know this generally about all of us. When we do something wrong, we tend to feel bad about it. Anybody? Right? I mean, listen, when you do something wrong, most of, most of us, right? Haven't had a psychotic break to where we don't have any, any feelings that, man, that was probably the wrong thing to do. Most of us deal with some, some stuff of guilt, right? If you're Peter and you know what you did to this man on a night, on a night that he eventually was crucified and you haven't talked to him since that happened, you're probably already feeling pretty lousy, wouldn't you think? And then when you show up to the moment to say to Jesus, I'm sorry, I can't believe I did that. He's got a fire burning. 
that the Bible records only happened twice. Once at the scene of your betrayal, and now here. You and I both know how he felt as a human. He felt shame. He felt shame. Anybody ever feel ashamed? Anybody ever deal with the fear? Not just the fear, not just the fear of the failure, but the reminders that come remind you to feel shame. You know how that works. We all know how that works. Here's the great thing about the fire. It didn't deter Jesus, did it? And you know what Jesus did with the fire? Nothing. He didn't even bring it up. I don't know about you, but man, I'd have been bringing that up pretty quickly. You start telling me you're never going to betray me. And then I watch you across the courtyard, right? Because one of the gospel accounts said that Jesus turned and looked right at Peter. Listen, if you're within earshot of a guy that said, I'll never disown you. And a little girl, a little girl saying, are you with Jesus? He's like, no, right? I'm probably going to bring that up, Right? I'm probably going to ask about that. Right? I bring up stupid stuff all the time in my relationship. You, you, and, and God knows I've had it brought up to me. Right? Here, here's the difference. Here, here's the principle that I want you to get. Right? Me versus you. Me being how we process guilt and shame. And you being how Jesus processes your guilt and shame. He never, ever, ever brought it up. Did he want him to remember? Of course he did. Because he wanted to show the difference between how Peter was feeling about it and how it affected Jesus. Psalm, the psalmist says in Psalm 103, that our sins are removed as far as the east is from the west and they are remembered. Come on, man, say it. No more, right? No more. No more. No more. Meaning never again. Not brought up. Yeah, I want the fire built so that you remember. But I also want you to be in this moment where I never bring it up. You see, some of you are sitting in here and some of you are watching online and you're living in bondage to your guilt and your shame about how you feel about what you did. And yet Jesus never brings it up. He never brings it up. As a matter of fact, he's bound to never even remember it again. And yet some of you are living today in stuff you did five years ago, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, and you can't let it go because of the guilt and the shame that comes with us. We've been freed from that in Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. We've not just been saved, but we've been restored. The Bible says, if you confess your sins, he is faithful to forgive you and to cleanse you of that unrighteousness. Shame is not a part of of being a disciple of Jesus. It's simply human. It's not a Holy Spirit quality. Because I don't know about you, but I've never had a visit from Jesus. Yes, the Holy Spirit in me says, that's wrong. That I've heard lots. It's usually accompanied with an adjective in my head describing me. Hey, stupid. Right? But I'm going to tell you something. And I've made a lot of mistakes in my life as a Christian. I will never, ever live in shame. Because of my hope 
is built in Jesus, then the fact that I would carry any shame into tomorrow for an act that Jesus forgot today absolutely goes against everything the Bible says. And if the Bible says, oh, we're truth tellers, we got to fight for the truth, well, then fight for it. The truth is this, and if Jesus forgets it, why are you remembering it? If the truth sets you free, then live in that truth. The truth is that in the blood of Jesus that was sacrificed for us, all sins have been forgiven for all time and they are remembered no more. Don't live in that. Because you know who wins when you live in your guilt and your shame? The devil wins because you can't do anything except what? Drag fish to a shore. Swim out of the water and try to prove to Jesus that you deserve his love. You don't deserve it. You got it because of Jesus. You'll keep it because of Jesus. And your life should be lived as a proof of that love, not to prove it. But if you spend all your time at the fire of remembering your guilt and your shame, you haven't experienced the full gospel of being set free. And I, listen, I've heard it a hundred thousand times in my life. Well, you just don't care enough about the stuff that you do wrong. Of course I do. That's why I accept the fact that a man died on a cross for that. Because he took it serious for me and I accept that. And my entire hope of my life in the present and in the future is built on that hope. And I may mess up today like you can't believe. But tomorrow, you're never going to know it. And it isn't because I don't care, it's because I believe. I believe that my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Right? That is my hope. I want it to be your hope when it comes to the fire of me versus you. You might feel guilty and you might feel shame, but Jesus never brought it up. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12 says this in 13. And listen, this is the last time I'm preaching for three weeks. So you know what? We're just going to be here till I'm done. Right? <laughs> for the word. Sorry. If, if, listen, if you, if, you got, if you got to go, just bring it up on your app. I'll still be preaching, right? For the, for the word of God is living. Listen to this. The word of God is living. Who is the word of God? Who is the word of God? Come on. Jesus is living and active. He's sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates. The word of God, Jesus, penetrates. Even the dividing of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. Listen. Jesus knows all your stuff. Because the word of God penetrates, baby. It knows it. You might be sitting in here or watching online and hiding all of, you may be sitting up here hiding it, but Jesus knows it all because that word of God, man, it goes deep. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to must we give account. I don't see that verse as being a negative I see it as a verse of reminding me that God knows everything about me and yet he loves me unconditionally every single day and I never have to earn it. I simply have to receive it. It's not a bad verse. It's a great verse. It's not a verse designed to scare you no matter how many of those hellfire and damnation preachers preach it that way. That verse is a verse to secure your knowledge that your God isn't like you. And your God isn't like me. Your God is a God that loves you unconditionally. And it doesn't have to require a 300-pound haul of fish or a 100-yard swim. 
If you want to do those things because you've received the love of Jesus, drag that net to Africa. Right? But if you're doing that because you think you've got to earn it, you need to drop that thing today and let it go. And then the face-to-face. The face-to-face. And I won't take long, I promise. John, 15, John 1, 15 through 19. Here's the conversation, right? Yeah, thank you, Carol. She never says that in my Saturday night class. I can tell you that. <laughs> says when they had finished eating. So they've had the fish. That, and here's the cool thing. Jesus didn't even need the fish. This is how stupid it was dragging that fish over there the way he did. Jesus already had fish on the fire. Peter, he's just like us, right? When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter. Now, here's the cool. Simon, son of John. Everybody say, Simon, son of John. Three times he used this. Why is that a big deal? Because words matter, people. You know what Jesus called Peter? He called him Simon what? Peter. After Caesarea Philippi, and he told him, I'm going to build my church on this rock. That confession. Here, after, after the fire of remembrance, he uses his old name. I love Jesus. He's so stinking cool, right? He's got Peter on the ropes. You know, the guy is just dying. He's just waiting for the hammer to drop. There's that fire. There's those fish. I remember the first time, right? He's freaking out. And then Jesus begins the first conversation he has with Peter since the denial. And he calls him by his name before Jesus changed it. That's like you telling your kids, Gord Ashley Bear, right? You're in trouble, right? I know some of you are going, your middle name's Ashley. Get over it, right? Get over it, right? It says, Simon, Simon, son of John. Listen to the question. Do you truly love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my lambs. Jesus again, second time said, Simon, son of John. He hadn't said Simon Peter. Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? Peter answered, yes, Lord, you know, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care or pastor my sheep. The third time Jesus said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? The Bible says that Peter was grieved. That word grieve there is the same Greek word used to describe the pain a woman feels in childbirth. So when Peter heard this question asked this way, it was like a gut punch. It wasn't, oh man. You know, how many of you ever watched the movie, uh, Tommy Boy, right? I shouldn't say that as a preacher. This was before I became a Christian, right? Right. There's a scene in the movie with Tommy Boy where David Spade hits Chris Farley in the face with a board, right? And he says, hey, you know, he said, it doesn't hurt here or here, but it hurts here, right? Like, is it red? That's exactly what it felt like to Simon Peter on this third question. Peter was hurt. He was grieved. Because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? And Peter said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. So why is that a big deal? Because in the English language, it seems sort of weird. Do you love me? Yes. Do you love me? Yes. Do you love me? Ooh, that hurt. Yes, I love you. Why? Here's why. Because in the Greek language, there are four words for love. And in America, there's one. Right? I love the Chicago Bears. Like you have no clue, right? Like I love them, right? 
Like if I could marry the Chicago Bears team as a general thing, right? Like that's my passion. I love vanilla, sugar-free vanilla iced coffee from McDonald's. I hate Dunkin' Donuts. Sorry. Sorry, sorry. Probably shouldn't say that online. Nobody's paying me, I promise, right? Let me, let me go through the four Greek words so you get what's happening here, right? So here's the first one, eros. We get our word erotic from it, right? It's a romantic erotic love. It's not used in scripture, okay? It's the, it's the feeling that's described of a man and a woman when they're together, right? That erotic romantic love. Storge, storge is found in scripture a handful of times. It basically describes family love. Right? The bonding a child feels for a parent is storge love. Right? And then there's philos. Right? Where we get the Greek, where we get our word Philadelphia from. The city of what? Brotherly love. It describes love between friends. Here's what C.S. Lewis, and then agape, the greatest of love, sacrificial, unconditional. It's the highest of all loves. C.S. Lewis said this about, about friendship love. Found this interesting. He says, now C.F. Lewis, you know, Chronicles of Narnia, all that stuff, right? He says a friendship love, philos, it's the least, I, I, I wrote that wrong, it's the least biological, it's the least organic, it's the least instinctive, it's the least gregarious, and the least necessary love. There's something unique about, about loving a friend as a brother. I don't know if you have one of those, but I do. I have a friend that I love more than a brother. We've been friends for 26 years, right? C.S. says this about the philos love. It's the least natural of those loves. Now, just track with me really quick here. Because I'm going to give you the principle from the face-to-face. And that is less, less versus more. Everybody say less versus more. So follow me with, just follow me here, right? I'm going to read a few passages. Jesus said this in John 15, 12, and 13. He said, my command is this, right? We're in the upper room, night before the arrest, the betrayal, and the crucifixion. He says, Jesus says, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Okay, everybody read this part with me. Everybody online, read this with me. Greater love has no one than this, that he, life for his, the Greek word for love, there is agape, the highest form of love. It's the love that God has for us. Sacrificial, unconditional, I love you. Listen to what he says. Greater agape has no one than this, that he, the person with agape, would lay down his life for his who? Philos. Right? You want to you have a friend? You know how you should love them? With agape love. Because otherwise, you're not really friends. Listen to what James 4 says. James 4 says this. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship, philos, having a friend with the world is hatred toward God. That seems like a pretty harsh verse to me. I mean, listen, there are things in this world I sort of like, right? Like I liked the fact before COVID that Steak and Shake was open 24 hours. You know, I, I, I like the fact that, 
I like the fact that DirecTV offers a subscription to where I can pay and I can see every football game every week. Right? There are some things about the world that I sort of like. And James says, friendship with the world is what? Hatred or enmity toward God. That seems pretty harsh to me. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 6, 24. No one. Everybody say no one. Right? That means us, me and you, can serve two masters. Listen to this. He will either hate the one and what? Love the other. Or be devoted to the one and despise or deny. Sound familiar? Deny the other. You can't serve both God and money. Here's what I want you to know. Jesus asked Peter twice, do you agape me? Do you have the highest love for me? Peter was smart enough to go, "Uh, I denied you about 10, 12 days ago. I probably can't say I do, right? He was smart enough to go, nah. But I do have friendship love for you. Jesus, you're my friend, right? Twice. Do you have the highest love for me, Peter? Peter said, no, but man, you're my friend, Jesus. Second time, do you, do you have the highest love for me, Peter? Peter said, no, but man, Jesus, you're my friend. The third time, Jesus asked him, are you really my friend? And the Bible says that Peter was grieved. He had the kind of hurt that a woman in labor feels toward the question. And listen to what he said. He said, Jesus, you know all things. You know I love you as a friend. Let me ask you a question. Did Jesus know that the first two times he asked the question? Of course he did. I don't believe for a second that Jesus asked him the third time to hurt Peter because he already knew the answer to the question. But guess who was hurt? Peter was. Because here's what we believe. We believe that I love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That means you should love him all the time, every day. Can we just be honest here? Is that what happens in your lives? Do you think that God looks down on your life and goes, oh man, they love me with all the heart, soul, mind, and strength every minute of every day? Anybody? Anybody willing to go, that's me? I do that all the time. Anybody? No. That's not how that works. Because guess what? Sometimes you're just Jesus's friend. But we think, man, if I'm not loving like agape love all the time, that my less doesn't cut it with God. And then what do we do? We go back to the fish. I gotta start dragons. I got, I gotta go on a mission trip. I gotta read. I gotta pray. I gotta watch YouTube videos. Right? I gotta watch worship 24-7. I gotta give, 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 cause I gotta earn it. Because guess what? I don't love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the next thing you know, we're dragging all these things to prove to Jesus, oh man, I love you. And you really don't. You just feel guilty and you feel ashamed and you're trying to make up for it. Jesus already knew that Peter didn't have agape love for him. He had instead philos love, the most unnatural kind of love a person can have for another. And here's what Jesus says to him. In the hands of me, your less becomes more. And hadn't Peter seen this before with a fish story? Send these people home, they said. Because we can't feed them all. It would take a year's wages to do that. And Jesus said, 
Let's feed them ourselves. Well, we don't have enough money to buy these people food. And then Andrew shows up with a little boy and says, this boy has five loaves and two fish. And you know what less did in the hands of Jesus? It produced enough food for probably 20,000 people and 12 basketfuls left over. Here's what you need to know about your love for Jesus. Maybe you're here today and the only thing you've got for Jesus is I'm your friend. And that's all you got. You want to know something? In the hands of Jesus, that's enough. It's enough. Because here's what Jesus knows. Agape love always starts with friendship love. That's why he warns us, don't be friends with the world. Because eventually you'll love the world. Because you want to know what the gateway to agape love is? It's friendship love. And if you're willing to say today and here and online that the only thing you got for Jesus is friendship love, you know what? It's enough. We all got to start somewhere. And maybe at one point in time in your life, you had agape love and you stopped. Maybe you denied Jesus. Maybe you stood by that stupid fire and said those stupid words. And maybe you think to yourself, I'm never going to get it back. It always starts with just being Jesus' friend. After the greatest failure of Peter's life, he found the greatest thing about Jesus. In my hands, that's more than enough. So listen, I just want to ask you today, online in here, if you've never, ever become the friend of Jesus, man, today's a great day to start. I'm going to be down right front. If you need to accept Jesus and be his friend, man, let's do that today. Or maybe you have once scaled the highest highs and you've had your moment of betrayal and you think it's not enough. Man, maybe you just need to be prayed for. If so, you come on up and we'll pray together. But I just know this. I don't have to prove anything to Jesus. I just have to live out the proof of his love. And I don't have to feel guilty and ashamed because Jesus remembers my sin no more. And I can always know that in the hands of my Savior, less is always more. Amen, church? Let's pray. Father, thank you uh, for this, these moments we get to share together. Thank you so much for your word. Thank you for Peter. He's quite a guy. He's a friend and a brother, and we've never met him, and yet... So many of us are indebted to his journey. I'm grateful for Paul or for John who told this story. And we're grateful for time and effort that preserved it for us. I pray for us today, Father, as people who declare our love for you, to learn from this, to learn what you revealed in this miracle. And at the end of the day, Father, I pray that whatever miraculous you do in our lives, it will do nothing but to drive us to believe more in Jesus as our Savior. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. God bless you, church.